The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Dress? The History of Fashion is a production of Dress Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, sometimes fate kismet, luck, fortune, or whatever you want to call it, is real. (laughs) Um, And that is because a little over a week ago, we opened our email and found this lovely message from the Milliners Guild, and they were writing to us to let us know that they were having their second millinery competition, uh, which is currently being held in honor of the mid-20th century milliner Mildred Blount, who up until that moment, when I read that email, we were both entirely unfamiliar with and i'm guessing that most of our listeners probably have not heard of her either but we very very quickly realized that we needed to rectify that situation because she was one of the incredibly important uh milliners of her day and while we might not have known her name most of us are actually familiar with her work and you have probably seen her hats looming large on the hollywood screens in films like gone with the wind and one of my all-time favorite films Gigi, or perched atop the heads of black socialites of the 1920s or 30s that little bit of kismet april referred to earlier is the fact that this week we aired an episode on the black hair care industry pioneer madam cj walker which was an interview with her great great granddaughter alilia bundles and we were tinkering around april with our Production schedule, thinking about an episode to air the following Thursday today to continue our celebration of Black History Month. And you may remember, dress listeners, from that interview that Mildred was a favored milliner of both Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, Alilia, and her granddaughter, Mae Walker. Not to mention, this is exactly the type of episode we love to do on Dress when we get to shine a light on some of the incredible makers out there who, for one reason or another, have been somewhat lost to history. But not in her day, as we will learn, because she was very well known at the time. A 1946 article in Ebony says of Blount, quote, Today, Mildred Blount has fame, a glowing Los Angeles apartment, and a clientele which sparkles with names like Marian Anderson, Gloria Vanderbilt, Mary Pickford, Marlene Dietrich, Madame Golly Kersey, who I don't know who that is, Rosalind Russell, and Joan Crawford. But she hasn't forgotten those who don't have $100 to spend on the hat, end quote, Um, which I did look that up um, and that would have been approximately $1,100 today that she was selling these Hollywood starlets hats to. So, (laughs) 
And today we're joined by Taylor Bythewood Porter to learn more about Mildred Blount, the very first African-American member of Hollywood's Motion Pictures Costumers Union. Taylor is an independent curator who specializes in researching and writing about African-American debutante culture, and we are so pleased to welcome her to the show. Taylor, thank you for joining us. Taylor, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. We are excited to have you here to speak to us today about the life and the career of a woman who has been called both the girl with the golden fingers and also by Ebony Magazine in 1952 as having been voted one of the four top milliners in the world. And given this fact, it's pretty staggering that today she has kind of more or less been lost to history. But before we get to Mildred, I'm hoping that you could tell us a little bit about yourself and also how you first came to be researching Ms. Blount. Yeah, absolutely. So again, yeah, my name is Taylor Bythewood Porter. I'm an independent curator, researcher, and writer. And I've been in the field for, oh geez, like almost like a decade at this point. A lot of my time was spent at the California African American Museum being the assistant curator over there. So for me, I I have a lot of exhibitions that really focus on African-American history, art, and culture. One of my exhibitions, Rites and Rituals, the Making of African-American Debutante Culture, won the 2023 American Association for State and Local History Award for Excellence. And so yeah, I've always really been interested in looking at Black women and what they are working for, what are they achieving, how are they like showing and proving that they're worthy of being recognized and really highlighting and elevating underrecognized stories, especially Black women's stories. And so with Mildred, I, I have a, a big fondness for her, but she, you know, working on this project and doing more research on her came about when the Milner's Guild reached out to, to Cam, because we have a couple of, they had a couple of her hats in the permanent collection. And so with the Milner's Guild, they have a, you know, kind of a hat competition going on presently. And they wanted to have, you know, more research and information about Mildred because some of the information and the biographies that are there and available online, you know, easy access, it tells a bit about her story, but really not, you know, the full breadth of it, everything. And so I was brought on, brought on to do, you know, more in-depth research about her. And from, from that moment, I was like hooked. I'm really looking forward to seeing how much more information can be found and really shared about this woman because she has really such a large legacy within millinery, within just the social activism that she's done, the achievements she's made as a Black woman. And again, it's being able to like highlight and elevate her her story. Yeah. And, and, and as soon as I started digging into her story too, I couldn't stop. I, could, I just tumbled down that research rabbit hole trying to find whatever I could. And what I was finding, I, it was astonishing that I had never heard of her before. And I have been doing this for a very, very long time. I talked to a couple other fashion historian friends. Most of them didn't know about her except for my one who specializes in Hollywood films. So we're going to get to that in a moment. But um, first, would you tell us a little bit about Mildred's early life? 
Oh, I mean, I think, you know, with just Mildred, the the main thing that comes to mind is that she was orphaned at a very young age. And I think that's where just like Summer First Story, like is like, has that mystery about it, which makes it so really compelling. And then also, right, like the misinformation that's out there. So I know that there are some records saying that she was born in like 1907. However, I found some census records that disprove that. So she was probably born around 1902. And, you know, she came from a really big family. She was the the youngest of six. And so she was orphaned around like two years old. And after, you know, her, her parents passed away, the rest of her, like her and her siblings split up throughout Carolina, Philadelphia, and Brooklyn. So she ended up staying in Eddington, North Carolina with her, ooh, I would want to say like her maternal aunt. So I think that's really interesting. Again, just when you're thinking about you know, families, especially African-American families at that time, how people were helping and supporting one another. So it was her maternal aunt who took her and one of her other sisters and she lived in the house. So maybe like five years or so. Again, this is where it kind of gets blurry with the timelines and everything. So she was definitely there by in 1910. She was in the 1910 census. So she was living with them and her uncle was a reverend in Eddington and he also has a history of serving within the civil war and then her aunt was you know a homemaker so you can some of these kind of narratives you could see where she was reflecting back on like oh I remember my aunt making me dresses like a lot of these kind of hand-me-down things or you know receiving dolls from other aunts who lived in, you know, Philadelphia and New York. And then Mildred having this type of reflection where, and I would make dresses and hats for my dolls. So you can kind of see this introduction of her making things and uh, being a Milner, and especially with making small objects, again, doll clothes. And so for me as a, you know, a researcher, I would just love to know more about like some of those beginnings for her. But again, I think just in general with African-American history and doing this kind of studies and research, right, it's things aren't really well documented. So you kind of have to kind of like fill in the gaps a little bit more. But from what my understanding is from her and her early life, especially in North Carolina, is that she was surrounded by really strong and independent women who were, even though they were maybe homemakers, they were going to school. They were really active in education, active in the church. So you can see how it was kind of building these foundations for for her and how she was seeing and interpreting the world. So her early life was spent in North Carolina. And then again, like around 1912, she goes to Philadelphia to stay with another one of her maternal aunts. And so again, this kind of movement. So for me, I'm wondering why did she move from North Carolina to Philadelphia? What kind of the family dynamics were happening over there? But she spent some time in Philadelphia with her aunt. And again, that's really interesting too, like her time there. She wasn't there for that long. But again, what was she exposed to? 
So her maternal aunt never had any, in Philadelphia, her aunt never had any children, but they were very active in the Union AME Church. And her uncle was also really active within Black politics at the time. And he also was a journalist and an editor for various different newspapers. So she went, again, to a very well-respected Black family. And so she wasn't there for that long as well. So she was in Philadelphia for a spell. And then she went again to Staten Island to live with her sister and her husband. So she was in Staten Island for a little bit there too, where she went to a couple of the elementary schools, but she didn't stay there for that long. I think they said that she went to like PS14. So that's always really interesting. And so again, you're really seeing how family really played a really important role for her as she's moving from like space to space at a really young age. And then the next time we're kind of seeing her again, right, is right that 1915 census where she was in Staten Island. And so she was like around 14 at that time. And so there, you know, from 1915 to 1920, right, she's kind of in this in-between space. I don't know eventually when she makes it to, to New York, to Harlem, but around, so within those five years, she transitions from Staten Island to, to Harlem and where she's staying with another sister again, the same sister that she was staying with in North Carolina. So again, the support of family and sisters. So she was there and that's where you can kind of see these big moments are starting to happen for her, especially in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seemed to be like when she hit New York, her life sort of started to stabilize a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I was quite fascinated to learn about her education while she was in New York, at, like during her high school years. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, that's where I would like to do more research and kind of digging. We know sometime between 1916-ish and 1920, she transitions from Staten Island to New York. So we know she has a little bit of elementary education. I also know that, right, she went to PS14 in Staten Island, but I think a lot of it was she had to support herself. And so you're think for me, I'm thinking about like what does it mean to be a woman, a black woman during that time period, especially, you know, being orphaned and going from kind of space space to space. So you she had to work, but she's mentioned like, oh, I worked as a waitress, I worked, you know, as a summer camp counselor. So I'm like, what summer camp? And meanwhile, she was mentioning how school was really important to her. So she mentioned she went to Cooper Union. However, this is where I think it's the kind of trick, right? I don't think she was necessarily formally enrolled in one of the educational programs, but she attended one of the classes. So for me as a researcher, I'm trying to find out what class did you enroll in or like how long were you there? Are there any kind of academic records that the school has? There was a moment in time where I was like, maybe I should even look at the school newspapers. Would they say anything? So she, I don't think she was at Cooper Union for a really long time. She was saying that she was working at a dress shop and she was also going to school at the time, but she got sick and she had to drop out. 
So I don't know if she necessarily completed schooling or if she completed her class, but she mentioned she went to Cooper Union. But again, right, she was going to school, but she was working and working was, you know, she was always working from a really young age. And again, it was to support herself and to support her family. You know, she mentioned that she worked with her sister at Madame Claire's Dretch and Hat Shop, an address I found it was on West 45th Street. So her sister was working as a fitter, a dress fitter at the shop, and she was working as a milliner and picking up scraps and learning the trade. So again, you can see how her sisters and the women in her family were taking more on those responsibilities of working in the dress field. And she was like learning and being an apprentice underneath them until she was doing her own thing. Yeah. I mean, I found the most amazing article um, on Mildred in Ebony. You have a copy of this too. It's from April 1946. If any of our researchers out there want to keep adding on to this research, but it details her time at Madame Claire's dress shop. And it tells this really quite interesting story. They say Madame Claire was one day yelling at some of the milliners for wasting materials. And then it goes on and it's talking about Madame Claire here at first. She said, quote, half jokingly, she said, I'll bet that errand girl referring to Mildred, could make me a hat from the scraps. Everyone giggled but Mildred, who knew a good thing when she saw it. The offspring of Madame Claire's scrap bag must have been a masterpiece. That lady wore it all weekend and had so many compliments that Mildred was raised to the rank of a milliner. So obviously she had been an errand girl and then out of this joke, she's like, oh yeah, I'll take those scraps and turn it into something. And she did. That's amazing. So from that point forward, she was promoted to milliner. What do we know about her work for Madame Claire in the 1920s? And also, who was her clientele? Because this is also another point when things get quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just the work that she was doing during that time, right? Like we can go back to her making like the dresses and the hats for her dolls. So she was really comfortable with literally being scrappy and, you know, putting things together. And again, that just really opened the door for her to work with more clients and really being strategic and, and who she's helping and, and, and dressing. But I think, again, it's like the time that she was spending in Harlem, you know, I think that was a moment in time where it was this growth of this Black community, where she was living at that time with her sister, right? It wasn't that far away from the Harlem YMCA. It wasn't that far away from the New York Public Library branch in Harlem itself. So you're thinking about who are these people who were living in that community at the time and who was really helping and supporting and grow these communities. And that was, you know, Madam C.J. Walker and all these other like major people who were figures and fixtures within the Black community at that time. Some of it, we can kind of say that maybe her sister, who was there a little bit before Mildred, set the stage for these social engagements. But again, like Mildred took it the, the rest of the way. So by 1920, you know, Mildred was officially living in New York City with her sister, and then again, they are a part of this Black community. Mildred was a part of this, a debutante club. So for me, as a looking at debutantes, I'm like, oh, I love that. That makes sense. So yeah, Mildred was a part of this debutante club. And the chaperones of that were Alea Walker and Lucille Campbell Green Randolph. 
So both, again, major figures within the Black community. So again, they are attending dances. They are doing these vaudevillian performances and showcases. And again, all of this leads to this grand moment in November 1923 when Mildred was commissioned to make the headpieces for the bridesmaids for the wedding of May Walker Robinson and Dr. Henry Gordon Jackson. And this is right. This is really this grand moment. 9,000 invitations to this wedding were issued. That, that whole event... <laughs> It was absolutely ridiculous. And again, for me, it's covered in the New York papers, but I'm seeing it covered and distributed in Philadelphia, in North Carolina. You know, it was publicized and shared across the country. This was this Black million dollar wedding. And like, there's Mildred's name. She did the veils. And so again, this really thinking about how Black culture is really documented. All of these things are found within like these newspapers. And because of Madam C.J. Walker, Alea Walker, and like their legacy and what they've done, they, you know, it is well documented. It is photographed. I think for me, that's the exciting thing too, right? Like you can actually go and see what she did in the 1920s. Like you can you know, zoom in on the picture and like see that lace work. And I'm wondering like, is that veil anywhere? Like, did they save it? Is it in the Madam C.J. Walker collection? Again, it just really shows her connection to the community and, you know, how much they really valued her work. And especially with the Walkers, they were always really about how are we supporting Black-owned businesses? How are we supporting Black women? Within that wedding, it was all Black everything, right? Black church, Black designers, Black this, Black that. And like Mildred was was there again to really like kind of elevate and showcase this is what Black people can do. And I think what was exciting also to learn is from that day, from like, I want to say, right, like 1923, she was the exclusive Milner for Alea Walker. So up until her passing in the early 1930s. So again, for me, I'm wondering anytime I see a picture of Alea Walker, is that Mildred's hat that she put, is she made? You know, I get like, do they still have those hats or any kind of correspondence? Those are those little notes and tidbits that it just makes you wonder. And I think from, from that moment, she really had this confidence on how she could really move forward and you can really see that as she's trying to build this empire and build this empire she does but not without a few trials and tribulations in the 1930s she she had both some kind of initial setbacks but then she definitely had some triumphs as well in the 1930s what was she doing then just to go back a little bit after the this like grand wedding there was a moment in time where she had her own hat and dress shop with her sister. So I think that was really interesting, right? She was quite young still then. Yeah, she was she was still young. It was really interesting. Again, bef- you can see this kind of like shift in transition where before before the wedding, 
it was really like her sister kind of taking the lead with, oh, I'm going to be at this uh, dress shop and then my sister works with me and I'm going to be over here and my sister's there. And now after the wedding, it's, oh, Mildred's name comes first and then the sister. So, uh, ooh, I wonder what those kind of family dynamics were like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, she was part and parcel of Harlem High Society. She was like right there in the middle of it. I know. I mean, I think some of the other things that I found on, on Mildred where it's just like, yeah, Mildred's just a social butterfly at this point right you know she was in the debutante club she's making hats for lay walker and you know she's doing all of these wedding veils for various different black socialite weddings and right she had her own hat and dress shop with her sister but then she gets sick it's not official like what her her illness was but it was you can i can say that it was something that really affected her for the rest of her life where she would have to take a lot of time off from working. But somewhere in like the early 1930s, she was again living with her sister, Clara, and they were living in Harlem. But then somewhere between spring and summer of 1931, she was hospitalized and she had to get a blood transfusion. And she got that at the Presbyterian Hospital. But in some of her kind of recollections of how her evolution, it, you know, while she was sick, she was like looking through classified ads and she found an ad for John Frederick Salon that was on Madison Avenue and she applied. And the story goes, they didn't realize that she was Black. They were kind of hesitant at first, but again, because she has this legacy of working with Black socialites and you know making these fantastic veils and hats she ended up being the first and only african-american employee at the john frederick's firm and so she worked with them in the new new york location for a majority of the the 1930s and again during this time she also takes a couple classes at city college she also becomes the vice president of the Young Women's Council for Education, which was this extension of the Urban League. So again, she's very much politically active during this time period as well. So I think for her within the 1930s, it's this moment of how, you know, obviously she no longer has her own dress shop and working with her hat and dress shop. So she's no longer working with her sister. She's working for like this formal salon. And again, because it's white owned and male, like there's a lot of documentation on who the clients were during that time period. I wonder who she was really working with. You can tell who the celebrity clients were for Mr. John and Mr. Fred. And so as she's doing her work, I'm thinking like, is she also working with these people? You know, it's not officially confirmed or not, but for me, you're thinking of, did she work with Ginger Rogers in that way? Because we knew that they worked with Ginger Rogers. We knew that by that time, by the 1930s, the John Frederick's gang or people were working with Hollywood. You know, they already started working with celebrities. And so, you know, they were working with Gloria Vanderbilt, Joan Crawford, the list goes on and on. And so... For me, I'm wondering, is that how, is this the, how she's making these connections and these kind of networks to these other people? And so again, I think there was this moment where she felt like she could really do it all and do it all, meaning creating 87 miniature hats <laughs> for the World's Fair. So she spent a lot of her time doing that research, especially, you know, in the later half of the like 1930s. 
there was a mention where she spent three years doing this research. And so research back then is actually like physically going to the library rather than, you know, us these days just going on Google. So for me, I'm envisioning, oh, did she go to the Harlem Public Library, now the Schomburg? Is she going to those spaces? And what is she looking at? And Yeah, because those hats were these tiny miniature hats that she created. Um, and they were historic hats. So she was re- making miniature reproductions of millinery dating back to 1680, which is amazing. And she made like dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And they were so incredible. They were actually shown at the World's Fair, as you mentioned. I found this one really great photo of her sitting on the floor, surrounded by like dozens of copies of Harper's Bazaar from the 19th century. So she was looking at those primary sources. It's pretty incredible. Absolutely. And I think that's where it's just like, oh my God, you have little nimble fingers and like amazing eyesight. (laughs) Because yeah, like she made a little over 80 miniature hats that were about 12 to 13 inches in diameter. And right, based on hat styles from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. So she was really doing this in-depth research and she became an expert in the field. You can say so much so that it really got the attention of the wife of David O. Selznick. And, you know, I'm just going to call out her name, Irene Mayer. You know, for me as a researcher and a historian, it's always, oh, it's the wife. Like, no, this, we're going to say her name, Irene. (laughs) which we should interject here because we haven't said yet but for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with the name david selznick david selznick was a major 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 hollywood studio executive and also the academy award-winning producer of gone with the wind yeah no, I mean, just I, setting us up. <laughs> no, I know, right? Even that I think is really interesting, right? David O. Selznick, oh, okay, and then he married Irene Mayer and Mayor of MGM. And so then you're like, okay, that's a whole other story around Hollywood. So the story goes that Irene is in New York. You know, she's checking things out. It's like maybe spring, summer, New York. And she's like walking down Madison Avenue. And they she goes by the John Fredericks you know, shop and she sees these miniature hats and she's like, oh, this would be perfect for Gone with the Wind. And I think really they probably got the contract a little bit beforehand. So I think Mildred was already kind of working on those hats, but it was that moment where they were like, Mildred needs to really work on these hats. So she told her husband and then by late August, 1939, you know, she leaves for Los Angeles to work at the John Frederick Salon on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. So again, it's this overlap in time. And I think it's really interesting because sometimes like there's a moment where you can see like a green kind of miniature hat that she made. And it's very similar to the green hat that Scarlett O'Hara, Vivian Lee is wearing in Gone with the Wind. So it's these chef's kiss kind of moments where you can really see those connections and You know, I think it's really interesting. Again, the narrative of John Fredericks for that moment and then the narrative for Mildred for that moment are like not very different, but you can see moments where John Fredericks is announcing to the LA Times like, oh yeah, we got this bid and now we're going to open up a salon over here in Los Angeles and we're going to be in the movies now. We, We did the hats for Gone with the Wind. We did all the hats, but they don't mention... Mildred at all. But then when you're looking at these kind of Black newspapers and Black sources, 
they're just like, oh, Mildred did those hats. She did those hats. She, you know, you're seeing her saying like, oh yeah, I did that. You know, she's moving out to LA and she's going to work in the shop and she's going to like lead the, the LA shop. So that's how she makes her transition from New York society over to LA. Oh no, just casually, like not a big splash at all. Just designing for the movie of the century, practically. I know. And so again, I think it just brings up more questions and conversations on like how people are properly being credited for their work, even on the smallest scale. Because you can, you know, there are like records out there with conversations with the John Frederick Salon and, you know, the production studio. And you're seeing John Frederick saying, get credit for these hats. And like the, the producers are saying, well, that's not how that's done. We're giving credit to the, like the costumes in general. For me, it's always like, how does that work, right? She was obviously working for John Fredericks at the time, right? But she was participating in the conceptual design. She was probably actually physically making the hats. But because she's making the hats, but she's with the organization, but the organization also isn't getting credit. Like she's really at the bottom end. And then for me, it just makes me think of who else was really participating in these movies and films that have never gotten their credit. And the only reason why we know that she did that work for Gone with Wind is because one, right, you were seeing some of the miniature hats so we can kind of make those connections. And two, she was very vocal about letting the Black press know and her people know and her community know that I did this work. There were a couple newspaper articles too where she was saying, I have to do it this way. I need to be recognized for what I did. When you're thinking of Gone with the Wind and you're thinking of this film, like there's so many iconic moments and images that can like are burned in your mind of taking down the curtains and making the, you know, those, those little things. And I'm like, you're thinking Mildred, I think Mildred did that. Mildred probably was worked on that hat. And again, I think it's also because she has that like history of working in Harlem with, you know, major black society within the 1920s and 1930s and being really politically active. She made really like a seamless transition with, you know, the black community out here in Los Angeles. And we can say at least probably since 1939, she had had a relationship with Hattie McDaniel, making her hats and things like that, showing up to events. And again, just like really being active. And especially again, like she was the only African-American, you know, working at the Beverly Hills store on Rodeo for these people. You know, she did a lot of work. And I think for that, it really leveraged her again to like this next level, especially with working with movies and film that again are uncredited. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. 
So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Okay, I have a super fun tidbit, and I have not told you this because I wanted to save it for the show. Does the name Muriel King ring a bell to you? No. Okay, so Muriel King was a New York City fashion designer, um, set up shop in the early 1930s, was very successful, but then took a break during the war and went to Hollywood and was designing Hollywood films. So... She was also one of the finalists to do the costumes for Gone with the Wind. And Muriel King was actually Margaret Mitchell's top pick. We have letters saying, like, pick Muriel, pick Muriel. I mean, ultimately, the job went to a costume designer who was known for doing historic pieces, Walter Plunkett. But the very, very cool fact is that we have Muriel's original sketches for her proposal for Gone with the Wind at FIT Special Collections, where I work. And we also have her sketches for Backstage, which she did design. And you have a photo of Mildred wearing one of those hats from Backstage. I have the original sketch of it. So oh my gosh. So at some point, Mildred and Muriel were actually working together as collaborators as well. So this just speaks how like she's moving throughout the Hollywood industry. It's it's great. It's really interesting. What other films did um, we know that Mildred worked on? I think she worked on Gigi, right? Which meant she probably worked with Cecil Beaton. That's one of my all-time favorite films, by the way. It is ridiculous. So she worked on Gigi, Easter Parade, Backstreet. She did a lot of films. And like, again, these are the only ones that we know of, you know, the collectively, because she told Black newspapers about it. There could be so many more. 
And again, for me, the thought is if she was really focusing on the hats, thinking about the work and and her being an expert in what 17th, 18th and 19th century hats, right? Now my thought is if there was a movie that was made between like 1939 and, you know, and whenever, like we'll say like at least probably like the 1960s, if it focused on those, like those three centuries, did Mildred do the hats for those because she's the expert? I think again, like when she made it to Los Angeles in, in 1939, 1940, it really just went for her. She made the good luck hat for Seabiscuit, who ran at Santa Anita after his like out of retirement race. We know she also did the wedding veil for Gloria Vanderbilt when she got married in 1941. She also like had this kind of exhibition of her miniature hats in like this, this kind of restaurant space in North Hollywood. And then from there, she was working on films. She was still at the John Frederick Salon. So this is right between this like 1940, 1945 range. And then from there, right, she ends up going to receive the Julius Rosenwald Fellowship Fund to continuing to assemble this kind of miniature collection of historical headpieces, which I think is really interesting. Again, when even still thinking just about what that meant for her and her career. So it's been documented that she was awarded $1,800 then. So that's roughly equates to about like 32,000 today. So she got a lot of money for that. And I think again, it's kind of like a research research makers grant kind of type situation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it was really interesting. Like you can, you know, you can kind of see like her, her application process, which I think is really interesting. And that's where, you know, you can see kind of her first little fudge saying like, oh no, I was born in like 1907. What does it mean to be a woman and you're applying for this grant and you're a certain age, right? You're going to fudge the year so you can seem a little bit younger. So it's, you know, a little bit more applicable. So again, how is life working as a single woman? Because at this point, right, she's still... You know, she's never married. She's still not married, never had any children. By, you know, 1940, she's living by herself. So she's a single woman and she's trying to like get all this stuff done. And she's just like working all the time. And I think, right, it was that kind of moment in like that mid 1940s where she's probably like, I think I can do this by myself. And she leaves the John Fredericks and she goes it alone with this fellowship she had enough money where she could do it by herself and again because she's really active within the black community like she has that support where she was named outstanding los angeles woman of 1944 that was like an honor given from the chapters of zeta phi beta so she had this kind of like national recognition in this type of way she was again right this is during world war too. So she's really active working with the American Red Cross, raising money, you know, making, you know, little hats and giving gifts and things like that. She's still kind of traveling back and forth to like the East Coast, where she's still continuing to do research because she has this fellowship money. And, you know, we don't officially know when, but by around 1948, she opens up her own shop. It was called Mildred Blount's exquisite hats. And it was in Beverly Hills. So we know by this time she wasn't just selling hats. She was doing gloves, 
blouses, slips, parasols. So she's really like expanding her reach in what she was doing. Yeah. I mean, I actually found an article in Women's Wear Daily that says that she went independent from John Fredericks in December of 1945, and it even gives her prices in it. Um, Apparently, her price started at that point at $50 in money of that day, which would be about $800 today. So she was at the tippy top of her game. This is amazing. No, I know. And again, right? You're just thinking like, how come nobody's really talking about this woman? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, I kept pulling this thread and I'm like, how do I not know any of this story? Right? How is a black woman getting her own store in Beverly Hills in the 1940s? How? How? This is fantastic. And again, just really thinking about the work that she was doing and who she was canoodling with. And again, it was like all these major film producers and people who... She's worked with at John Fredericks and like she's taking these people, these clients with her. Yeah. And and, and from this point in the late 1940s, she's kind of unstoppable. Um, you know, you mentioned she moved again in 1948 and um, the shop, I think, had a slightly different name. But she's starting also to appear on quite a lot of radio and television shows. She was on TV on Groucho Marx's quiz show. She was featured in Pepsi ads that were aimed at African-American consumers. Pepsi did like this whole ad campaign that was called Leaders in Their Field. So she was very much a celebrity of her day and kind of part of not just African-American, but white American pop culture. It's just really interesting, right? 1950s, like she's really active still within like black social circles and communities. So now at this point, she's like a judge for these kind of annual competitions. There was a moment where she had an exhibition of her hats at the Detroit Historical Society. So again, like she's really all over the country and her name is really well known. Around that time period too, right? They're, They're saying that she's rated one of the top four Milners in the world. You know, that she was credited for starting this doll hat craze of in the 1940s, 1955, she becomes the member of, you know, the Motion Pictures Costume Union and the first African-American to be part of that union. She worked with the Ice Capades for 1956 and 1958. And right, her creations were often featured on things like the Ed Sullivan Show. And now she's being like written about in these different books, who's who of American women. And she's really kind of like sharing her biography. And there's so many different mentions on like where she's being featured, who her clients were, her, again, the filmography, you know, so in the 1940s, right, we know she worked on Easter Parade. So I'm like, oh, so again, like I'm thinking these iconic of like Fred Astaire and Judy Garland and like there's a whole song about wearing an Easter bonnet from the Easter parade and I'm like oh man I wonder if Mildred did that Easter bonnet she probably did and then again Gigi in 1958 so like she's still really working like always working and I think it also has something to do probably with her this illness that she's always kind of suffered with that she doesn't really go into that we don't really know so much about Because really, like, once we get to, like, the 1960s, things kind of just fizzle out for her. There's, like, a lot of documentation in the early 1960s. But after that, like, it kind of just, it disappears. And so, like, right for me, I'm always wondering, like, well, what what really happened to her? Because in the 1960s, she, again, she 
being honored and being a judge for a lot of the work that she was doing. You know, there was a moment in time where she might have been like a contract worker to restore hats and textiles at different museums. I know, like she mentioned that she did work at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So she did some things at LACMA, which also makes sense because they have a like a little miniature collection of her miniatures. So, you know, we know that, but there's not much else. And so that's where I'm like, well, what what happened to her. We know she passed away on September 12th, 1974. She died at a convalescent home. She passed away and she donated her body to UCLA Medical Center. And then after that, right, like there's just, it just disappears. And so like, I think, right, the further we get away from the 1960s in these moments, it's her story seems to be kind of fading away. Because, right, there was none of that credit within movies. Even if you go on, like, internet movie database, like, she's not there as an uncredited person. Like, that's a work that somebody has to do. Because there was this lack of acknowledgement for her work or just, like, just work in general of people who are making these major movie moments, they just kind of disappear. And it just ends up being this, not, like, so much like an old wives' tale, but, like, whispers in the wind. And these moments where you're like, well, I want to find out more because, right, you know, Gigi, you know, these move like these movies. I know those hats. <laughs> you know those hats. But we don't like, know who they, who, who the makers are sometimes. Yeah. Right. You know the costumer, but you don't know the people like who are making the gloves, who are doing these things. What were these presence of like Black people or women or the people who are actually like doing this work and this labor? Because again, these are these moments within movie history within fashion history right again gone with the wind it's a major movie these moments and mildred was there she was a part of it like i'm looking at los angeles black newspapers and like seeing people right like oh did you watch the ed sullivan show the other day if you did you saw mildred's one of mildred's creations oh this person was wearing mildred's hat like all these little things and little moments that are really important for, you know, people in their careers, for creatives to be acknowledged in that kind of way. It's just really, it's just really interesting. It's really fascinating. And I think it just, for me, it just, who is, who is this woman? And we don't know entirely yet. And this is before uh, we recorded, uh, when, when you and I were talking about setting this interview up, we were like, you know, there's still so much work to be done on her, which is interesting. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of your future work and perhaps other people that start to like pull this thread as well. And I said this the other day um, on the podcast, we were talking to the curators of the uh, Costume Institute about the Women Dressing Women exhibition. And it, we were talking about how as researchers, we're always constantly like standing on the shoulders of, of somebody else's scholarship and like progressing and progressing. And Mildred is a prime candidate for this. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, for me, right, it's, it encompasses so much, so much. The work that she was doing during the Harlem Renaissance, those, those are opportunities to really like dig into those things further, you know, where she was, who she was engaging with, because it just really speaks to her like activism and, you know, black activism in that way, you know, female activism and being a feminist in these types of ways as well. 
especially as she was really working with these Black women's groups and organizations. You know, she was part of the Urban League. She was part of these different like sororities and going to these events. And then still, again, these ripple effects. Who who was she working with? You know, again, she went to so many different trade shows and like she's selling these works and so then you're like but where are they now there they have to be somewhere and are they in somebody's basement or a garage and it was their grandmother's and they don't know what to do with it I'm like that's a Mildred original like you don't even you might not even know these things or again because she was really active you know, with the American Red Cross, like those are other like opportunities for further research and information because her like life and career spanned like decades. There's just so much dig through. And again, right, like she was orphaned at a young age. A lot of her like siblings passed away, you know, in the 20s, 30s and 40s. And so then you're just like, well, who did she have towards the end, especially like the later years? What was that like for her, you know, right again, mentioning that she was sick and she had the blood transfusion, but I'm like, well, what, what happened with that? What was that like, you know, especially as you're thinking about vaccines and like, she mentioned a little bit like, oh, you know, I have influenza and I'm like, okay, the flu. So like, what does that mean? There's just so many points within like American history, within African-American history, where like she was a part of and that she touched in these under-recognized ways. And it's, again, it's just right. you're saying, kind of like following these threads because there are so many. <laughs> well, we are thrilled to have at least shown a light on what we know at this point. Um, she truly was one of the greatest American milliners of the early 20th century. You know, her story is amazing, and but just one of all of these African-American fashion makers throughout history who have been kind of lost time. So we adore doing these types of episodes on dress where we get to shine a light on those stories. So thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for your work on her. And um, keep us updated if you have any new spectacular discoveries, please. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. Taylor, thank you so much for sharing your research on Mildred with all of us today. April, as you and our listeners know, I worked for many years as a costumer for film and television, and it's such a treat to get to know the behind the scenes makers like Mildred better. And recently we spoke about invisible labor in the context of planning fashion exhibitions. But again, here we are, right? Mildred designed hats that we all know and love, and yet her name, her fame of the 1940s and 50s has faded from the collective memory. But not to all especially not to black costume designers working in Hollywood today. So a few years ago, Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth Carter, alongside fellow costume designers Sharon Davis, Michelle Cole, and Francine Tanchuk, established a Mildred Blount scholarship fund to, quote, support young aspiring costume designers as Mildred Blount paved a path and poetically passed the torch to us founders through the scholarship they too look forward to discovering the next generation of costume designers to hold the torch. And on that joyful note, I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider honoring the legacy of Mildred Blount by adding a hat to your ensemble next time you get dressed. In April, you will be speaking about some little known black fashion history makers in your upcoming great designers class, right? I sure will. A couple of them in part one and more so in part two. 
but part one of that class is going to launch at the beginning of April, and you can learn more about that and register at dressedhistory.com. You can also find information on my Fashion History Fridays at the Met, as I'm now doing 90-minute private fashion history tours of the Met's most fashionable masterpieces. Uh, right now, we have slots open for March 1st and March 15th, but uh, tours like these are going to start becoming a little more frequent um, once we hit April and into the spring. So. Several of you have already reached out about dates later in the year um, when you're going to be visiting New York, and I'm happy to do those too. So keep those requests coming. I'm, I'm happy to book alternate days for your groups of family and friends whenever you're in New York City. Just send us an email. And you can send that email to hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is, of course, where we post images to accompany each week's episode. To find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, check out the hashtag dress 346. And dress listeners, I'm sure you've heard us say it before, but we want to make sure you know that you can listen to dress ad free for just $3 a month. You can skip all those ads by just subscribing to our exclusive content. You can find a link to do so in our show notes, where you will also find a link to our dress bookshelf with more than 120 of our favorite fashion history titles. Thank you as always for joining us and more dress coming your way Tuesday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.